Viking is Pam Dorman. She's a friend and she happens to be married to my amazing editor. How was it working with Pam? And did you, did you like second guess her? Oh, you know, I think one of the, I know I love this. Now we're going for the gossip. You're my kind of woman. Um, I think one of the reasons I chose Pam is that I knew I wouldn't second guess her. I knew that I just, she's such a pro and she's so revered in the publishing industry. And I knew I had a lot to learn from her. So it was a great person for me to work with. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. This week, we are featuring a debut author whose own story skates two lines in publishing, author and editor. We're so excited to talk with Jenny Jackson about Pineapple Street, named a most anticipated book of 2023 by Time, Vogue, Elle, Southern Living, Bustle, and way more than that. I am Ron Block. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. Jenny is a vice president and executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf, a graduate of Williams College and the Columbia Publishing Course. She lives in Brooklyn Heights with her family. Pineapple Street, unbelievably, is her first novel. Perkis said, quote, Jackson has a deft hand. Rich people jokes, cultural acuity, and entertaining banner keep this novel moving at a sprightly pace. A remarkably enjoyable visit with the annoying 1%. Jenny, welcome <laughs> to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And I love that quote. I think a remarkably enjoyable visit with the annoying 1% is like, yes. I, I just like smother that all over me for the rest of my life. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly kind of tells us what the book is about, though, right there in that one sentence. It's great. It does. So you and I have talked before, but it's so wonderful to see you again. And we are so excited for our listeners to get to know you and your book a little bit more. First up, give us the overview of Pineapple Street. Sure. So Pineapple Street is the story of three women in the same upper crust, wealthy, traditional Brooklyn Heights family. We have Darley, who is the oldest sibling, born into money, married to the love of her life, two small children, wrestling with what it means to have given up both her trust fund and her career for the sake of her family. Then we have Georgiana, who is the youngest. She's the baby of the family. Georgiana is spoiled and self-righteous and does something kind of terrible and all of a sudden has to figure out what kind of person she wants to be. And then Sasha, who for many of us is going to sort of be our spirit guide through the novel because Sasha is an outsider. Sasha is born and raised middle-class Rhode Island, moved to New York, fell in love with a guy at a bar. Turns out he's stinking rich and now she's part of this insane family. That's amazing. So what we also like to do is is dive a little bit deeper and ask people, what is the book really about? 
Ah, well, yes. Let's peel back the onion a little bit. The book at its soul is really about being good because I think all of us do and should kind of walk through the world thinking, what, how am I making the world better in any way? How do I be a good person? And to sort of turn up the volume on that, these characters have a lot of money, which means they have a lot of opportunities to be either really good or really bad. And that's something that Georgiana especially is going to wrestle with. But so for me, this book is about being good and also how we come to be a family despite our differences. Yes. Well, let's talk about origin. What first sparked the idea that you wanted to write a novel instead of just, just (laughs) editing? We know it's so much more than... (laughs) Just editing. And how did that spark progress from there to the finished book? Well, you know, I think that the pandemic was weird and terrible in a lot of ways. But one of the strange things about it is that I ended up finding it an incredibly creative time. And that's because we were all working from home and we couldn't see our friends and we were bored and lonely. And and I found that all of my sort of social spark was missing. And I desperately wanted to be going to parties and talking to people and having lunch with my friends and gossiping and flirting and just doing all those things that make life fun for me. And I couldn't. And so instead, I just started writing and pouring that into this book and sending my characters to parties and letting them flirt and letting them gossip and letting them do all the things that I wanted to be doing. And so I was sort of um, channeling the world that I wanted to be in with this. But the idea for Pineapple Street came from sort of three different life things colliding at once. One of them was that we spent a lot of time with my in-laws and my husband with my parents in those weird days uh, of no work. And I just kept getting reminded over and over again that even though we all love each other so much, it's just actually impossible to ever really fit in with somebody else's family. Simultaneously, one of my close friends was invited to move into her husband's family's Brooklyn Heights brownstone, but she wasn't allowed to even hang coat hooks. So a little spark, oh, what would it be like to move into someone else's house and not be allowed to touch anything? And then the third was this New York Times article I read by Zoe Beery called The Rich Kids Who Want to Tear Down Capitalism about millennial heirs who think that inheritance is wrong. So you can see how those three ideas really form the base of Pineapple Street. Yeah, definitely. Sort of three strands that you managed to to braid together. Tell me, now I have to ask, your editor at Viking is Pam Dorman, who happens, she's a friend, and she happens to be married to my amazing editor. How was it working with Pam? And did you, did you like second guess her? Oh, you know, I think one of the, I know I love this. Now we're going for the gossip. You're my (laughs) kind of woman. Um, I think one of the reasons I chose Pam is that I knew I wouldn't second guess her. I knew that I just, she's such a pro and she's so revered in the publishing industry. And I knew I had a lot to learn from her. So it was a great person for me to work with. But, you know, like all great editors, Pam knows that it's not like because she says it, I have to do it in the revision, you know? And so there were some things that I just either 
didn't feel or didn't, didn't ring true. And that was fine. But I will say I took about 98% of Pam's notes for the book. I think that's a good editor author relationship. People who haven't been in that place don't understand about what a collaborative effort it is. Truly, I've had editors who say that if they have a writer who takes 100% of their notes, it makes them lose faith in the writer. They say, where's your vision? Oh, oh I never heard that. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Okay, so the story's told from three distinct character viewpoints, plus a lot of outlying characters that we kind of all fall in love with. <laughs> we all love a theme party and tablescape, don't we? Tell the listeners a little bit about each of those three, a little bit more than you mentioned earlier. And are they based on anybody that you know? Ooh, I love that. You know, hilariously, I think I, I think in, I put a lot of myself into all three of them. You know, Darlie is, she's type A. She's an overachiever. She's actually pretty geeky in a way. She, um, she went to business school. She's passionate about aviation and investment banking. And that's what really brings Darlie to her marriage with Malcolm. She falls in love with Malcolm because Malcolm had started a blog as a teenager about, about airplanes. And so they have this really authentic connection. I personally am not actually passionate at all about airplanes or investment banking, but it was (laughs) important to me that Darlie was super smart, super driven, and really just intellectually engaged because that makes the stakes really high for her when she gives up her career to be a parent. And I personally um, have two young children who are about the same age of um, Darlie's kids. And I'll tell you a lot of the stuff those kids do is based on stuff that my own kids have done and did. There's a scene where Darlie's children pick up a dead pigeon at the playground and carry it around. And I regret to inform you that that is absolutely something my own two children did. Um, so Darlie, in, in those ways, I feel like I really relate to Darlie. Georgiana, I don't relate to as much because Georgiana is a delightful brat. And I think she, when some readers have said they love to hate some of the characters, and I think for them, Georgiana is is who they're talking about because Georgiana is just not even aware of her privilege. She is so right. oblivious to it, and it makes her really annoying. But also, how fun to write a character who is so fabulously out of touch. You know, I had a ball writing her, but then... When Georgiana falls in love, she's taken down a peg. You know, the her, the love story for Georgiana is really intense. And that was one of my very favorite parts to write because Georgiana falls hard for someone. And it's that sort of humbling love where she is just so head over heels for someone that she can't have. And so that made her very, I think that makes her relatable to readers, but also who among us has not been humbled by their pathetic aching for somebody who is not theirs. And then, you know, um, Sasha is probably the most relatable character. Sasha grew up in a really close knit family of kind of wild brothers and cousins. And I really enjoyed writing their antics. These are guys who like, 
get in trouble for stealing a boat, who get wasted at her engagement party and embarrass everybody. And they're just like wonderful lunatics. And we get these little glimpses of them sort of messing around at their house, trying to catch a bat in the basement dressed up in a hockey uniform. So they're, they're wonderfully wild. And Oh, I know a few, I know a few wild people. And, um, so I had a lot of fun writing about them too. Wonderful. Well, I'm guessing, I don't know, maybe you were, but I'm guessing you weren't born personally filthy rich, but talk to us. I'd love to hear about your stealth undercover work. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, to get into the characters in this. I mean, you told us about a friend that moved into the, the family mansion and couldn't touch it. And of course, that's really very much what happens with Sasha. Yeah, I, I was I was not born filthy rich. And I honestly think, you know, I, I grew up middle class and had a really lucky upbringing in that I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about money or class as a kid, which is a privilege in and of itself. But moving to New York was pretty mind-blowing for me because when I first moved to the city, I took a job as an editorial assistant at Knopf. I've actually grown up there and been there for 20 years. And I moved in with three investment bankers and they wanted to live in Soho. And I was making, I can't quite remember if it was $25,000 a year or $30,000 a year, but let's just agree that's not enough money to live in Soho in in New York City. And my roommates were all making six figures. We were 23 years old and they were making so much money. And they said, you know what, Jenny, we think you're cool. We like having somebody interesting living with us. We have a fourth bedroom. You can live here and we'll prorate it. You can just pay what you afford, what you can afford. And so I lived in this crazy apartment. We literally had a steam room in our apartment. We would have parties for hundreds of people and I paid way less than my fair share, but I was exposed to just a level of wealth in New York, especially among the finance people that, that is unlike anything that exists in most of the rest of the country. And it's so funny because New York wasn't always like this. You know, my husband grew up in the city and he says that growing up, the rich kids were the children of doctors. And that's sort of, you know, I, I always felt that way that the rich kids in my high school had a parent who was a dentist, but in New York in the past two decades, the rich in New York are actually all hedge funders. They all work in finance. Like, and, and there's sort of, you know, a, a running joke here that, oh my God, the children of a doctor. Oh, you're a doctor. Good for you. You know, it's like, it's become <laughs> insane. And so I took such pleasure in sort of exploring that world and learning about that world. And Brooklyn Heights has a pretty hilarious little slice of it because Brooklyn Heights has celebrities and Brooklyn Heights has a lot of hedge funders and sending my kids to the preschool in the neighborhood occasionally just blew my mind because literally at the last preschool fundraiser I went to, they had one of those raffle tables, you know, where you throw tickets in for different things and the prizes (laughs) were hilarious. One of them was to play golf on the most exclusive golf course in all of the Hamptons, but my personal favorite, Oh, one of them was for a child sized Tesla. They say you can win. (laughs) And then another one was for, uh, to win a Botox party at your house where this famous dermatologist would come and give all of your friends Botox. And you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I bought $50 in tickets and I tried for everything, but I didn't win anything. (laughs) 
I'd love to see you with that little Tesla. <laughs> I know. I don't even know where we'd keep it, but I, I, it would have been pretty fun. I probably would have been like, sorry, kids, this is mommy's Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> What is there a message that you're trying to to give your readers about this kind of ridiculous, ostentatious wealth? There is. And, you know, my life philosophy in general is that you catch more flies with honey and that a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And so I don't think anybody should read this and feel lectured in any way. But I do think that, you know, the thoughtful reader should walk away saying, you know, there is no logical reason for a 22-year-old to inherit $10 million. There is no logical reason for, you know, the the children of the 1% of the 1% to be inheriting in this way. And, you know, the, the novel opens with a quote that says, basically, this younger generation is set to inherit the largest amount of money in American history. And it's known as the great wealth transfer among finance types. And all this is doing is increasing the the gap between the haves and the have-nots in our country. And in the book, one of the ways that the characters think about it is in terms of setting up foundations. But foundations are a band-aid. You know, that's not that's not a cure. This is something that we need to think about on a on a governmental level. Did it take yeah. you a while to find empathy for some of these characters? I have to tell you, I mean, Tilda really was on my last nerve. How <laughs> did you, you do, you did it beautifully. You landed that plane. You made us yeah. feel, okay, I understand them. But for me, Tilda, how did you do that? Oh, thank you. And I'm so happy that we get to talk about Tilda. Tilda is the matriarch of the family and she is clueless. Oh my God. She really is out of touch, which made her so much fun to write. I think writing her dialogue was like my greatest joy where I would honestly like reread what I wrote and cackle out loud, which is like totally unbecoming for me to admit. But I I had a blast. I thought she was, I think she's so funny. But you know what? It was really important to me that Tilda make a step towards growing and changing by the end of the book. I'm not going to tell you that she is like a zebra with different stripes by the end of the book. I don't think that she was. she's truly capable of understanding exactly all of her privilege. But I do think that it was. it's really important to me that she does begin to see what her children are talking about by the end of the book. And the reason that's so important to me is because that's, I mean, that's the only way we're ever really going to manifest changes by letting sort of the generations learn and talk to each other. And I am, so I am an elder millennial on the edge of millennial and Gen X. So I'm sort of the same generation as um, Darlie and Sasha in this book. Georgiana is a different generation. Georgiana is much closer to Gen Z. And Gen Z is really different than my generation, than other generations. Gen Z is much more socially minded. Gen Z is a lot more thoughtful about unfairness in our society. And it gives me a lot of hope for the future. I, I think I think they're going to help us move in the right direction. Hope so too. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to piggyback on that a little bit because each of your characters does have to face change in the book. 
but it's all a little bit differently. Can you talk about writing those, of course, without spoilers, but kind of having them face the change and actually changing? Changing. Yeah. I mean, I'll talk about it, I guess, a little bit in terms of Georgiana, because Georgiana's change is perhaps the most radical in the book. And I think that there are lots of things that, you know, that can change us in life. I think, you know, having a baby makes you change. Falling in love can make you change. Um, losing your job can make you change. There are lots of things. What Georgiana goes through, no spoilers, is truly a moment of crisis. And this makes her reevaluate who she is and who she wants to be from the very ground up. And um, one of the things that you might find interesting is that in previous drafts, this huge thing happened really too late in the book. And it didn't give me enough room to explore what she was going to do with her new desire to be a good person. So I had to move her crisis up because you can't just, because it's not a switch, right? If something terrible happens that causes you to reevaluate whether or not you're a good person, you have to spend some time in the muck. And so I had to let Georgiana spend some time in the muck in order to claw her way back out. And it was really hard to revise, to move up the crisis. And, you know, that's one of the things that they don't tell you when you sit down to write a novel, writing in close third person. (laughs) Yeah. I just, it's really, it's easier to write a novel from rotating point of view. It's harder to revise a novel from rotating point of view. That makes total sense. So uh, the other thing I want to ask about, though, is one of the things I love about this book is how hysterical it is. So many reviewers, they they use over and over again, like hilarious and heartfelt, hilarious and heartfelt. But the hilarity is what? Like there's some communication between two of the characters that I just fell on the floor laughing. And I, I couldn't wait to see some more of it as we went along. So talk about infusing humor into the story. Yeah, you know, I mean... Some of my, some of the writers that I've worked with as an editor are my inspiration. You know, Kevin Kwan with his Crazy Rich Asian books is so mm-hmm. good at writing humor. And then I work with Catherine Heine. So if people out there haven't read Early Morning Riser, they really should because Catherine is so hilarious, but her, her humor is character-based and that's really my favorite kind of humor. You know, it's not so much that something outrageous happens, it's that, which... I'm all for that also, but, but the humor you can get from a character is, is really sophisticated because you have to let your reader get to know your character and then put them in a situation where they say the last thing you would expect them to say or the exact thing you would most expect them to say. And you can really derive the humor from their being in that way. So that, that's one of my favorite sort of lessons that I've learned from the writers that I work with. But I learned a lot about writing towards a joke. And Kevin Kwan taught me that one of the things he does, one of his tricks is he puts a post-it note over his computer with the word joy on it. And that's just to remind him as he's writing that what he is trying to do every step of the way is deliver joy to his reader. And so I did the exact same thing. I put a post-it note over my computer, and that was my mission with Pineapple Street, was to write something joyful. Right. Well, as a reader, I certainly got that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to have to try that trick. Thank you for bringing that up. Continuing on this path, Brooklyn Heights itself is quite a character in this novel. And I love the wonderful street names. And of course, I am from such an old generation. I just remember the theme song from the Patty Duke show, 
where <laughs> they would see that Patty's only seen the sights a girl can see from Brooklyn Heights. And so as a little kid, I thought, oh, well, Brooklyn Heights is a working class neighborhood. Not so much, huh? <gasps> okay. I love that. I can't believe that I didn't remember that song because my mom was obsessed with the Patty Duke show because people always told her she looked like Patty Duke. Oh. <laughs> so I've seen it a lot. Brooklyn Heights has not been a working class neighborhood really, really much at all. It was, um, so it's called America's first suburb and it was, um, established originally actually as a vacation home for Manhattanites and then became more of a commuter city. And now, you know, I think one of the reasons it attracts a lot of finance types is because it's one subway stop away from the financial district. And so Ah. it's really fast just to zip zip across to work, but also because of the way that the highways are constructed, the BQE, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway circles around the neighborhood, um, along the outside. And so it's this protected little enclave where there are no highways, no throughways, no big trucks rumbling through. There even aren't a ton of cool restaurants. I mean, there are some, but it's not a destination it's a family residential neighborhood and it's leafy and it's cobblestoned and it's historic. And the Brooklyn Heights Historical Society has gone to great lengths to keep it that way. There are no huge skyscraper buildings. It's really a low key, very beautiful section of Brooklyn that happens to be full of celebrities. (laughs) (laughs) It just happens to be. We mentioned early in the introduction that you are basically wearing two hats in publishing. How do you pivot from one to the other and how have they worked for and against each other? I think it has not been nearly as difficult as I would have thought. I sort of grew up being told that the cardinal rule was that if you wanted to be a writer, you shouldn't work in publishing. If you want to be a writer, don't be an editor. And the philosophy on that is, you know, you will feel like you're always the bridesmaid and never the bride. And you will feel like all the best ideas are already taken and it'll make you jealous and, you know, and sap at your creativity. I I have not found that. Instead, I feel like I've studied at the feet of, you know, the masters. And so I've like absorbed a lot of lessons that way. And then just in terms of like a logistics day-to-day thing, I think that it's pretty important as a writer, but this might be true no matter what your job is, to just section off part of the day that is your writing time. And so for me, that was sort of 5 a.m. to... 9am um, and and make that your own and just let yourself be off the internet, off your email and focus during that time. And then the other little piece of it is I just am so lucky to have really good relationships with my writers. I work with really awesome people. And even though it was potentially embarrassing or exposing when my agent went out with Pineapple Street to sell it, I just got in touch one by one with every single one of my writers to say, Hey, I wrote something. I'm going to try and get it published. Let's see what happens. But you know, you heard it from me first. Cause I just wanted to let them know, like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm still your editor. I'm not trying to leave my day job. And also I just thought, you know, God, I, they have shared so much with me over the years that I owed it to them to give them a heads up that I was about to try something different. That's awesome. 
Now, we've heard that Pineapple Street has been optioned for television. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's been optioned by Picture Start, and they have a writer attached. She, Her name is um, Sarah Watson, and she's the writer for The Bold Type, and she was a writer on Parenthood, and she really understands the book so well because I think, you know, I don't know if anybody remembers that show, Parenthood. It was on for a long time, and one of the great things about it is, like, it didn't have a murder at the center. It didn't have a scandal at the center. It was sort of just about what life is like for this family. And I think that makes Pineapple Street a good fit for her because, you know, reading the book, every chapter does end on a sort of hooky little note, but there is not a murder driving this book. It's not like one, you know, it's not, it's not like there is a great crime or a trial or, you know, a ghost. It's really just the interworkings of these people. And so she understands it really well. And I'm really excited to see what she does with it. Now, do you see Pineapple Street extending to another? I mean, there are other streets in that neighborhood, right? I know. It's so tempting. Isn't it tempting to do Orange Street and Cranberry Street? Yes. yes. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I'm I'm trying to work on, on something a little further afield right now, similar vibes, but in Massachusetts, in my hometown of Ipswich, which is a, a beach town with a castle. And so anyway, I'm having fun tapping away on that one. So we'll see what happens next. Nice. Okay. Well, that answers one of my questions, but uh, I, I mean, <laughs> we all can't wait. So if you need early readers, we're here for you. Thanks. So the people that that we love, our friends and fiction community, really always want to know what books and authors have influenced you as you were growing up and and some current favorites. Yes. One of my favorite writers is Lori Colwyn, and she published Mm -hmm. mostly in the 80s and 90s. And Lori Colwyn writes what I call the chocolate pretzel kind of fiction, which means that it's both sweet and salty at the same time. You know, she she's funny, but also can make you feel, you know, heartbreak at times. And there's always like a little sharpness because she's so smart. So that's somebody who I just have always idolized, but that chocolate pretzel kind of writing is my favorite to read as a reader, you know? And I think, um, there's this amazing book called sorrow and bliss by Meg Mason that came out last year. And she is for sure a, why am I laughing when I'm also crying kind of writer? Um, Catherine Heine is one of those writers. I think Curtis Sittenfeld is such a Mm -hmm. great comic writer. I love Emma Straub. I love Courtney Sullivan. These are the kind of writers. I love Meg Wolitzer, The, the kinds of writers who are simultaneously really funny and really smart at the same time. That's what rings my bell. Nice. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. We know this book and your prose are going to be devoured by our listeners, Mm -hmm. and then hopefully they'll be viewing it. If you would, tell everybody where we can find you online and learn about any tour info or just connect with you on social media. Absolutely. My number one platform is Instagram, where you can find me at Jenny Jackson Pineapple. And I've just posted my tour schedules for US and for UK. I'll be in Toronto also, and we're going to keep adding events on the US tour. So check me out at Jenny Jackson Pineapple. That's wonderful. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, Jenny, for joining us. You know how much I adore this book and your work, and I I can't wait for more. And I know that everybody's going to love this recording. So thanks for being with us. 
Thank you so much for having me. What a great conversation. Yes, yes, yes. And thank you to all our listeners. Don't you just love when a debut novel feels like a gift to us readers? Be sure to grab a copy of Pineapple Street from your favorite indie store or shop the friendsandfictionbookshop.org site for a little bit of a discount, and it's another way to help our indie bookstores. We hope that you love this episode, and as always, please share with a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.